Father, we would have perished had your word not been our delight. It gives us life. It teaches us how to live. It sustains us in difficulty. Father, we need to hear your voice through your word this morning. So indeed, that is our prayer that you would speak. And Father, in that, in that appreciation of your word, in the humble acknowledgement that we need you to speak, Father, we are also mindful of our Ukrainian brothers and sisters who even earlier today continued to gather for worship amidst attacks on their homeland, bearing witness as they love their neighbor as themselves, caring for the injured, bearing witness to the saving power of Christ as they continue to spread the gospel. We pray that the word that they heard preached today, your word, would help sustain them and give them hope beyond their circumstances, that it would give them confidence in Christ, their King. Likewise for us, help us this morning to fix our eyes on Christ as well. We pray that as we look to Him, that we would find freedom from temptation and sin. We would feel freedom from anxiety and anger. Father, this morning we pray that you would enlighten our eyes to see your glory. That you would strengthen our hand for your work. We pray all this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. If you have a copy of God's Word, and I hope that you do, please turn with me to the book of Psalms. In 1940, as the Nazi party was in control of Germany, seemingly on its way to ruling all of Europe, one man in that country published a small book that must surely have been seen as open rebellion against Adolf Hitler. Despite the obvious anti-Semitism of the government leaders, a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer published a book that exalted the Jewish scriptures by calling German Christians to recover the Psalms as the prayer book of the Bible. There he writes, Whenever the Psalter is abandoned, an incomparable treasure is lost to the Christian church. With its recovery will come unexpected power. Initially, Bonhoeffer was issued a fine for having that book published, a fine by the government. But later he was actually imprisoned and sentenced to death for his refusal to go along with the Nazi party's anti-Christian demands, both on him and on the Christian church. And yet it was the Psalms that helped sustain Bonhoeffer's faith while in prison, even as he walked to the gallows to be hung. I wonder if when we think of the Psalms, we think of them in that way. If we would attribute to them that kind of spiritual power, and whether that is at work in our lives. This morning we are beginning a new series through the book of Psalms, a series that Pastors Rick and Michael and myself will be preaching over the next uh, few years on various Sundays. 
And speaking for myself, it's not without a little fear and trembling that we begin this series. Because for generations, the book of Psalms has been one of the most important, certainly one of the most beloved books in the Bible. If that's not the case for you, consider that the early church theologian Jerome tells us that the average Christian in his day, the common farmers and vine dressers, would go about their work often refreshing themselves by reciting or singing the Psalms from memory. Likewise, at certain times in Christian history, church leaders were required to memorize all 150 Psalms in preparation for serving in their churches. Or consider that the first book printed in the United States was a collection of the Psalms. Not the whole Bible, just a new translation of the Psalms. More recently, if you were to go and to buy a, just a New Testament, you would often find the Psalms packaged with it. Sometimes Proverbs slips in there too. But you're never going to find Proverbs without the Psalms as well. Maybe the Psalms hold such prominence connected to the New Testament because it is the most quoted book in the New Testament. Uh, that is the most quoted book from the Old Testament in the New Testament. If you were here on Friday night as we read through the entirety of the Psalms together, first of all, well done. It's an experience likely to not be repeated in your lifetime. Uh, but if you were like me, it was like, oh, that's Romans. Oh, that's Revelation. Oh, that's the Gospel of Matthew. We're just again and again, these verses that, that we know so well from the New Testament popped out from their context in the Psalms. James Johnson explains that Jesus and the apostles consistently turned to the Psalms to preach the kingdom of God and establish key doctrines. Yet I fear that many of us today, many Christians today, kind of take the Psalms for granted. They're there. We've read some of them. Most of us will probably have at least one of them read at our funeral. But beyond that, we're not really sure what to do with them. Of course, they're in the Bible. We know that they will have an impact. But why ha uh, have an impact on us when we read and study them? But why have they had such an impact throughout the history of the church, both to the people of Israel in the Old Covenant and to us, God's people, in the New Covenant? After all, no one talks about Jude or Habakkuk with such love and reverence as they do the book of Psalms. Well, before we begin our journey, let, let me give you four characteristics of the Psalms that make them worthy of our time and helpful in our walk with God. First, in the Psalms we see an unparalleled emotional intensity. Emotional intensity. Love him or hate him, John Calvin used to call the Psalms the anatomy of all parts of the soul, and theologians across every spectrum agree with him. Because what he meant was there is no emotion experienced by humanity that is not somewhere explored in the Psalms. Whatever you're feeling right here, right now, whatever you felt this morning, we'll feel later this week, there is a Psalm where someone else is experiencing that same thing. And so in this book, we see biblical expressions of those experiencing things like loneliness and love, sorrow and shame, regret and repentance, awe and anger, exaltation, fear, delight, depression and grief, joy, brokenheartedness and hope, and we're just getting started. How often do we experience those things and yet don't know how to talk to others about them. Don't know how to talk to the Lord about those emotions that we are experiencing. 
Sometimes we lack the vocabulary to go before the Lord in prayer and to speak honestly about what we're dealing with and about what we're experiencing. Understand that these psalms are not only rooted in the real historical praise and thanksgiving and confession and repentance and joy and sorrow of real people, real believers in history, but they are also the perfect words of God for the building up of our faith and the living out of righteousness. Thus, what we have in the psalms is not just an example, but divine instruction on how to think and feel about God and the ups and downs of life. The Psalms show us how to call out to God in all the pains and pleasures of life. How can the psalmist, how can those writing the Psalms navigate such highs and lows? It's because they know who God is. They know who God is. And so this is the second, the second thing that we see, the second characteristic of the Psalms, and that is they are marked by doctrinal complexity. Doctrinal complexity. In the Psalms, God is shown to be things like a shield and a rock, a shepherd and a judge, a refuge and a fortress, an avenger of his people. He's also exalted as the creator, the deliverer, the healer, the protector, the provider, the redeemer, and above all these things, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, whose sovereignty is not threatened by anyone in this world. And so in all of this, God is to be worshipped. He is to be trusted and he is to be obeyed. Because in these things, in his movements with God's people, he is shown to be good and upright, righteous and just, gracious and faithful, loving, compassionate and forgiving. In other words, that the character and care of the almighty sovereign God brought to bear in the lives of his people is on full display. He is the one who calls his people out from the world, who distinguishes, from the, distinguishes them from the world, by empowering their lives, and enables them to fulfill his purposes in the world. It's not surprising then that people like Martin Luther look to the Psalms and have called it a small Bible. He says, here in this one book, you see all of the important themes and theology that you find everywhere else in the Scriptures, but applied in the crucible of life. Amazingly, the Hebrew title of this book is Praises, As we've seen, we shouldn't take that to mean that we only see people expressing praise to God. Rather, and I think more profoundly, we should take that to understand that God is to be praised in all circumstances. In all circumstances. But what exactly are the Psalms? Well, just by quick scan, we visually can see they look different than the parts that come before and after. Because here, and this is the third characteristic, we see poetic artistry. Poetic artistry. The Psalms are, by definitions, Hebrew poetry. Some are songs, written as songs, meant to be sung by individuals, the gathered people of God, but most are prayers, prayed by individuals or the gathered people of God, sometimes also sung by God's people. As poetic works of the Hebrew language, there is much skill and artistry that went into their composition. But what do we typically think of when we think of poetry? We think of rhyming, right? So some of you a few weeks ago got some flowers and you got a card and you wrote something like roses are red and violets are blue, sugar is sweet and so are you. And you hope that would make for the great start of a great evening on Valentine's Day, right? If not, that's a freebie. You You can have that. But can you imagine trying to translate that into thousands of languages across history and different cultures? I mean, that'd be a nightmare. And 
we are grateful in God's providence. That's not how the Hebrew mind worked. They didn't really care so much about rhyme in their poetry as much as rhythm and repetition. And so again, perhaps you were here on Friday and you noticed that there was some really obvious just repetition of the exact words to emphasize a point. But sometimes they used a kind of repetition called parallelism, where they would repeat the same idea in similar words to emphasize something, or sometimes by way of contrast to, again, emphasize the same point. This poetry is also marked by an extensive use of metaphor and vivid imagery. Though the individual psalms are unique, being written by various authors, there are also basic categories they fall into. In other words, there are, there are certain kinds of recognized psalms. And, you know, scholars uh, spend lots of time typing away, debating what all of these kind of categories are. And, and really what we're just doing is looking at them and trying to describe what we see. So there's not a lot of universal agreement, but at a basic level, when we read the psalms, we see hymns of praise. We see psalms of lament and trust and thanksgiving and wisdom. We also see royal or messianic psalms. And as uh, Pastors Michael and Rick and I preach this series, we want to, we're not just going to go straight through, we're going to try and pick up all these different kinds of psalms to give you a flavor of the entire book. Likewise, the entire Psalter, uh, that, that word just means all the books, or all the psalms in the book of Psalms, the entire Psalter shows an intentional design. Someone didn't just sit down on a, on a Sabbath evening and slap together all 150 and say, we're good to go, throw it in the Bible. Uh, no, what you have in your hand is a carefully crafted collection. Uh, through these Psalms, uh, we, we see penned Israel's history, the final product of which was, was, was brought together sometime after the exile. You say, how do we know that? Well, because Psalm 137 says that God's people were sitting by the waters of Babylon. Well, that only happened in the exile. And so it's sometime after that then that someone takes all of these other psalms that have been written and collects them into its final form, into five smaller books or collections that form the one book that we have in the Bible. And each of these smaller sections, these smaller books, have a specific kind of feel to the emotion and to the, the content that is there. Taken together, they broadly tell the story of Israel. The rise of David as king and the Lord himself who stands as the ultimate king above all things. We see the, the struggle of conflict between David and his enemies, the sin of Israel and ultimately the pain of the exile. And these things, though, move the godly not to complain endlessly or to despair, but ultimately to bring their concerns before God and to long for the day when God will fulfill his promises to David through the coming Messiah. Let's, this leads us to the final reason why the Psalms are so helpful and important to us. We see in this book a clear gospel centrality. Gospel centrality. After the resurrection, Jesus gave his disciples a master class lecture on biblical interpretation and famously said in Luke 24, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he said, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So it would be wrong to try to read the Psalms and not understand them in a way that helps us to see the work of Christ our Savior. That doesn't mean that, that every Psalm is going to have a specific prophecy about his coming, but it does mean that every psalm plays a part in the ongoing history of redemption that helped prepare God's people 
for the coming of Jesus Christ. The Psalms help us understand how God redeems and restores sinners, not just under the Old Covenant, but under the New Covenant as well, ultimately and finally in Christ. On a more typological level, we see Christ fulfilling the Psalms through the cries of God's people in praise, lament, and confidence. Because Jesus was our perfect substitute in our humanity, He experienced and fulfilled for us the entire range of human worship and struggle. So when the psalmist feels forsaken, Jesus felt forsaken more completely than any other when He was on the cross. When God's people in the Psalms praise God, we know that Jesus praised God more deeply than any other because He understood more clearly than any other who God is and why He should be praised. Every expression by God's people finds a more profound reality in Christ because He was the perfect man who endured every temptation yet was without sin. He was and continues to be and will forever be the Son of God who knows and trusts the Father in all things. Thus, on a very fundamental level, every psalm is either declaring praise or asking a question that Christ provides the ultimate answer to. In the psalms, we hear the voice of our Savior. So in all of this, Spurgeon's exhortation to his people still rings true today. He said this, in these busy days, It would be greatly to the spiritual profit of Christian men and women if they were more familiar with the book of Psalms, in which they would find a complete armory for life's battles and a perfect supply for life's needs. Here we have both delight and usefulness, consolation and instruction. For every condition, there is a psalm suitable and elevating. So this is why we have entitled this series Doctrine and Doxology. Here, our minds are going to be filled with the glorious things of God, and we hope that that will move us to worship Him, not just with our lips, but with our very lives. The book of Psalms opens with an introduction that spans two psalms. Psalms 1 and 2 work together like two great doors of a gate that need to be opened before we can enter into the Psalter. And and through these two doors, we here learn why and how we ought to read the Psalms and benefit from them. And so today, we begin our journey with Psalm 1. And if you're still with me, I would encourage you to stand as we read God's Word. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. May God bless the reign of his word. You may be seated. Here here we see a contrast between two ways of living. And in our remaining time this morning, we want to see how those in these two ways actually live where their paths end, and which way we should choose for our own 
lives. First, let's consider the way of the righteous. The way of the righteous. Psalm begins by telling us about the blessed man. Most of us sit up because we, we want to be blessed, right? Even uh, people that do not know the Lord, when I ask them, how are you? They will often take biblical language and say, well, today I'm feeling very blessed. Well, that means that blessing, that word blessed means a lot of different things to different people. Here, blessed is the happiness that flows from a sense of rightness and flourishing in all parts of our life. A happiness that ultimately comes from God who has given rest to our souls and has brought joy and contentment to our lives. It doesn't mean that life is easy or free of pain, but it does mean that even in the midst of such circumstances, the blessed person knows peace because they know God. That's what the psalmist is talking about here. And in that sense, the righteous are blessed. So what kind of life does that look like? Well, we see that this kind of righteous and blessed life is marked by two things. First of all, discernment in the world. Discernment in the world. In the description of the righteous person, we're actually told what he is not like at first. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So let's, let's unpack these phrases and descriptions here. So to walk in the counsel of the wicked is to listen to their advice or their instruction. You're willing to take upon yourself the way of thinking that characterizes wicked people. Do that long enough and you will end up standing in the way of sinners. That we shouldn't mean that to mean like, hey, you're not going to get through, you're not going to pass. It's not that kind of standing in the way, but rather you, you have now walked in their shoes. You are now going into their lifestyle. It's not about thinking, but now it's about living. Finally, there is the seat of scoffers. Scoffer is the one who not only lives the life of a sinner, but also has no regard for God. They go beyond the others in that they actually mock the righteous. They don't just, they don't just disengage from the way the righteous live and do their own thing. No, they mock, they make fun of the righteous for following God in His ways. To sit with them is to join them. And what does the, what does the psalmist say? The righteous person is not like that. They're not like this. They're, their thinking and their living is not defined by the wicked, sinful, scoffing ways of the world. They know better. They have discernment to, to keep walking, to, to even flee such things. And I hope we do today. Even as Christians, though, just on a practical level, we have to understand that people don't walk around with signs that say, scoffer, wicked, sinner, right? Sometimes these are our friends. Sometimes this is our family who, who are well-meaning and they love us. But in their thinking and in their living and in their advice, they contradict the wisdom of God. Therefore, in that moment, they indeed are a wicked influence. And so we need discernment, not, not, to, be, not to be brought in with a bait and switch thinking, oh, I can trust this person. We need our minds activated with a discerning influence to be able to distinguish, am I being drawn in, am I taken in? And of course the question is, well, where does that discernment come from? How, how do I, as the righteous person, know to keep walking and not entertain the alluring ideas of the wicked around me? Well, the righteous have discernment because they have been shaped by a delight in God's word. This is the second description of the righteous, a delight in God's word. Look at the text again. 
verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The law of the Lord that is, is God's instruction or teaching, and it stands in sharp contrast to the instruction of the wicked. And because the righteous delights in it, he meditates on it throughout his days and his nights. Now, several times in classes and in blog posts and from the pulpit, we have, we have wanted to make the distinction from what we might call secular or Eastern meditation and biblical meditation. In, in, in a kind of worldly meditation that you often see in cartoons and television shows where someone has their legs crossed and their fingers turned up on their, on their knees and their eyes closed saying something like, Om. The, the, the whole point is to empty the mind. Well, that, that's not what the Bible teaches that we should do. Biblical meditation is the exact opposite. It's about filling up the mind. It is about setting our mind, setting our thoughts on the things about on the things of God, fixing our thoughts on God's truth and contemplating its riches and implications for our lives. I have uh, I have painfully learned over the years that it is far more helpful to eat a meal slowly than to wolf it down, particularly as age comes upon me. Things are better for me when I eat slowly. But my foodie friends also tell me that eating slowly allows you to actually enjoy the meal, right? It, it's not just the food, it's now an experience where you're, you're noticing flavors and textures that you would not normally notice if you don't just go, oh, done, moving on, right? Got things to do and places to be. Well, well biblical meditation is kind of like enjoying a meal. It's about slowing down and mentally chewing on what you're reading in the Bible. You're seeking to appreciate its truth and its beauty. And when we do that consistently, it will transform how we see the world and how we live in the world. One of my favorite examples of this is, uh, uh, comes from the life of a man named William Wilberforce, who was a British politician in the early 1800s. He was a, a driving force that helped end the European slave trade and, and see it banned in England long before uh, we were able to accomplish that in this country. And in his journal one day, he says that he was walking to Parliament from his house, or uh, yeah, walking to Parliament from his house, and he recited Psalm 119 to himself to great benefit. Now, if you don't know, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. It's 176 verses, and this guy had memorized it. And as he is going into battle once more against wicked mindsets and ungodly politicians, he decides to recite this back to himself, to, to meditate on it. And, and Psalm 119, go, go read it this afternoon. It's amazingly applicable because so much of it is about the righteous man who is persecuted for being righteous. And yet his confidence is not in whether his enemies win the day, but his confidence is in God who will justify him. So Psalm 119, meditating on God's word, comforted Wilberforce's heart, and it clarified his purpose in being a light in the darkness. Meditating on Scripture may seem like an obvious thing to do, but it can be hard to find a believer these days who does it consistently, who does it as a regular habit. So what keeps us from meditating on God's word? My guess is it's probably one of two things. First, we simply don't delight in Scripture. 
we don't delight in the law of the Lord. Maybe we've grown up in church and the Bible is so familiar to us, we just take it for granted. We've got it in multiple uh, translations that are all very good. They're well done by world-class scholars. Uh, we have it on apps. We've got them lining the back of our cars and in our dashboards. and It's just everywhere. It's just kind of a, an assumed thing. Or maybe our view of the Bible is mechanical. Maybe it's just a book of wisdom, and when we need to know how to live or what decision to make, we go to it, and we forget that the Bible is meant to establish fellowship with the living God. Maybe it's something else that, that prevents you from delighting in it, but the point is we have somehow missed the awesome wonder that comes in remembering God. God wrote a book. That book is in our language so that we can understand it. And as the Holy Spirit speaks to that word, we hear God's own voice. The second thing that probably keeps you from meditating on God's word is the fact that we are just too distracted in the age in which we live. You know, I, I love science and technology. I love seeing people with gigantic brains maximizing their God-given potential to innovate and problem-solve and do creative and, and, and amazing things. But, but all of that also has the potential for negative outcomes. And, and maybe the example that is at least ubiquitous in my mind and maybe to yours is this little brick that I carry around in my pocket all the time. We call it a cell phone. And I, I love this thing. Because it gives me total access of communication to all of my friends and family, whether they're in this city, whether they're in this state. Uh, I talk to people around the world. Uh, when my dad was growing up, uh, you couldn't call across Butler, uh, Butler Warren Road because that was the county line and it was long distance. It, it was easier to step out your door and say, hey, neighbor, and come to the street and have a conversation. I, I don't worry about long distance here. Lord willing, this Wednesday I'm going to Brazil, and you know what? My cell provider just picks up a local network, and I can make calls, access the Internet, do all kinds of stuff. It, it's amazing. Beyond that, think about the dozens of social media apps so I can know what everyone is thinking, what everyone is eating, while they're going on vacation, pictures. It's like I was there with them. I can access my bank account. I can take high-definition pictures and video. I can read books. Tonight, when the sun goes down, I can look up and identify the constellations in the sky, all from this phone. Right now, if I turn on a certain app, I can tell you what planes are flying overhead. I can give you the, 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 the indicator, the, the flight numbers. I can tell you where they took off from and where they're going and what time they'll approximately arrive. And it makes phone calls, too. It's an amazing piece of technology. And yet, through this little box, I can literally waste away my life. Some of the things here are good and, and helpful. Other things range from unhelpful to disgusting that I have access to through this little box. Moreover, this little box was designed to vie for my attention. It keeps saying, look at me, look at me. Look at me. Don't you want to know what's happening in the world? Don't you want to know what's going on? Don't you want to not miss out on anything that's happening? Oh, what if someone went to Applebee's and they had a really good steak? Don't you want to know about that? And once you're pulled in, you hear that voice saying, keep scrolling, keep scrolling, keep scrolling. What, what else is down there? Keep scrolling, keep scrolling. And so every day, Sometimes multiple times a day, I have to fight for focus. 
have to make a decision to silence notifications, to turn off the little red numbers, to go into airplane mode so that I can actually have some time to think, time to spend with my family, time to pray, time to meditate on God's word. And some, some days I am really successful, and other days I am terrible. Some mornings are really great, some afternoons are not good. Whatever your source of distraction is, maybe it's not the phone. Whatever your source of distraction is, silence its siren call. It is not worth hindering your delight in God's word, boxing out a lifestyle of meditation on its precious life-giving truths. And, and Psalm 1 hammers that into us because it shows us the benefits of one who delights in God's word and who meditates it on day and night. Look at verse 3. The righteous person who meditates on scripture is like a tree planted by streams of water. There is stability to their life. And that's not what, from what they do. No, they are planted. Someone else has done that. Who? God has done that. God has set the righteous in their place by his word. And where has he set them? By streams of water that yield its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In this part of the world where, where, where the psalmist is writing, you have trees next to wadis and, and these sources of water that dry up in certain parts of the year. And so when it's not the rainy season, this tree looks dead and leafless and then the rains come and suddenly it springs back to life and there's, there, there's green leaves on it again. The imagery here is of a tree that is planted next to a constant source of water. It never goes dry. It never dies out. It's never leafless. It's never fruitless. It's always living and healthy. In other words, God is saying by his word, the the, the righteous have spiritual vitality. Moreover, he gives us spiritual prosperity. In all that he does, that is the righteous man who delights in the word, who meditates on it, in all that he does, he prospers Like the promise made to Joshua before he led Israel into the promised land, here the psalmist knows that those who make the Lord's word their delight cannot help but succeed in accomplishing his will, enduring strife, and bearing the fruit of righteousness. So I would encourage you to ask the Lord today to help you delight in his word. And then box out the distractions, put it on your calendar, set aside time to fix your mind upon. And if you say, I've never meditated before, or I've done it poorly, then Pastor Jason has put on a whole list of new resources in our resource portal on the Bible reading page about how to go about scripture meditation. And it is everything from just uh, an an article that gives uh, kind of an incentive and an example to some bullet point things to do, to the historical practice, to an entire book of a Puritan who in 97 pages lays out exactly how he meditates on God's word. There is something there for everybody. Make use of those things. Or come grab a pastor and say, hey, let's go out for coffee and I want you to show me how you meditate on God's word. Or find a member in this church. Do you meditate on God's word? And if they say, no, sorry, then say, well, let's go, let's go find somebody else that does and learn how it is to, to fix our minds on not the world of lies and deceit that surround us not the currency of a godless society going all the way back to the serpent in Eden, but the eternal truthfulness of God's word. That that is the antidote. A steady, regular prescription of God's word is the antidote to the world of lies in which we live. The righteous delight in God's word, but others reject God's word. 
as we go back to verse 3, we want to now consider, we would look at the way of the righteous. We now want to consider the way of the wicked. The way of the wicked. The righteous is like a tree planted by streams of water. They yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Verse 4 begins with a strong negation. The wicked are not so. And that relates to everything that has come before in the depiction of the righteous. Everything about the righteous is annulled by the strong reversal, the, 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 the not so. So are the righteous deaf to the, to the counsel of wicked people? Not so the wicked. Are the, do the righteous avoid standing in the way of sinners? Not so the wicked. Are the righteous those who refuse to sit with scoffers? Not so the wicked. Most importantly, are the righteous those who delight in meditating on the law of the Lord day and night? Not so the wicked. Not so. And the results are disastrous. The wicked experience not a fruitful life, but a hollow life. A hollow life. That is the first of two ways they are described in this passage. They have a hollow life. According to verse 4, the wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. What, what, what a contrast between the, the strong, living, vibrant, righteous who bears fruit and just this rootless, empty, worthless chaff. In the psalmist day, the heads of grain were, were, were taken from wheat and picked up with a winnowing shovel. They, they would literally separate the good parts from, from the useless parts. The outside shell that was, that was no longer good for anything and, the, and the, the useful, helpful, nourishing grain inside. And literally, they would just let, on windy days, the wind blow the chaff away. Other times, they would gather it up and burn it. What, did, what does that say about chaff? What does it say that God would associate and describe the, the, the life of the wicked as chaff? Ultimately, when God is ignored... The soul shrivels and eventually dies. It's, it's a terrible picture. But it's a, it's, a, it's a picture that we see played out over and over and over again throughout the history of the world. One that you may or may not be familiar with is a man by the name of Horace Greeley. I, I, I in some ways, pick him because he's a contrast to William Wilberforce. They, they lived roughly the same time period, and he's famous for popularizing, if not coining the phrase, go, yeah, go west, young man, when we were looking to expand our nation from sea to shining sea in the 1860s. But among historians, he's known for much more than that. He worked as the editor of the New York Tribune for 30 years, and he believed in the essential goodness of humanity. From that unbiblical idea, he backed over 40 experimental communes designed to shape a better society. He anticipated the sexual revolution of the 60s by advocating for free love and always seemed to be promoting some kind of new cause that might bring about a utopia. Humanity was basically good. We can do this. We can build a better society. But every single endeavor he backed failed. He eventually tried running for president in 1872, and that campaign failed miserably. He was committed to a hospital for a nervous breakdown where he took stock of his life and he came to a stunning conclusion. It's all been a waste. 
it's all been a waste. In, in a letter penned just before his death, he wrote, I stand naked before my God and most utterly, hopelessly wretched and undone of all who ever lived. I have done more harm and wrong than any man who ever saw the light of day. I, I doubt that's true, but that, that's what he feels. That, that's the weight of his wasted life. He says, I take God to witness that I have never intended to injure or harm anyone, but that is no excuse. Still yet, the woes of the wicked are not confined to this life only. These paths, these two ways to live do not just terminate off into the the sunset like the good guys at the end of of a classic Western. The Bible is clear that our life in this world anticipates and prepares us for the world to come. And those walking in the way of wickedness have only a hopeless future to look forward to. A hopeless future. That is the the second thing that characterizes their life in this psalm. A hopeless future. In verses 4 through 6, we see the final contrast between the way of the righteous and the way of the unrighteous. He says, The wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. What does it mean for God to know the way of the righteous? It means more than just he's aware of it. It implies ownership. D.A. Carson says that God claims it, and he watches over it. He protects the way of the righteous because it's his own way. It's the way that he has laid out for his people to walk in. But that's not true of the way of the wicked. The way of the righteous will stand, but the way of the wicked will one day perish, we're told. The way of wicked living and thinking with hollow wisdom that's birthed by sin will one day be blown away like worthless chaff never to be thought of again. Like footprints on the seashore, the way of the wicked will vanish when the tide rolls in. But the way of the righteous, God's way, never ends. You understand, he's talking not just about people, but about the very ways in which they walk. And and I don't know about you, but but I take great comfort in that. I take great comfort that a million billion years into eternity, no one's going to be thinking about people like Pol Pot or Hitler or Stalin or Putin or anybody else. But they're not going to be thinking about all of the, 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 the mass murderers and, and just the, the everyday people who made life li- miserable for the right. No one's going to be talking about their things. No one's going to be talking about their writings. No one's going to be, be singing their songs. But forever, the Lord's word is fixed in the heavens. And therefore, we will continually be exalting in and rejoicing in the way of the righteous that the God himself has set us on and continues to keep us on for all of eternity. The wicked will not stand in the judgment. They have no place among God's people on the final day. Instead, they will face God's just condemnation for their sinfulness. But that's not the fate that the psalmist nor God wants for us today. On the contrary, the psalmist is inviting us to flee that way of the wicked and to embrace the way of the righteous here. He's not just making an assertion, this is what happens. Implicitly, he's saying, flee wickedness and come to God and his way of righteousness. But where do we begin? How do we make that transition and how do we continue on that? I mean, let's be honest. Most of us do not neatly fit on one way or the other. There are some of us who would say, well, yeah, I'm, I, I be, I'm on the way of the righteous. I've, I've trusted God. I've put my faith in Jesus. But, but how often do we find ourselves listening to those voices on the, from the, following from the way of the wicked? 
How often do we, do we sometimes find ourselves beginning to think like them? You know, the whole thing about being connected in social media, well, one of the most disheartening things is to find people that claim to be believers who mock the righteous for their decisions and how they live, seeking to be faithful to God's word. You've become like the mocker and the scoffer. So what do we do? How can we hope to be among the righteous who stand in the judgment? Well, remember how we started in this psalm. It was the psalmist telling us about a man who is blessed. That blessing comes from delighting in God's instruction, which makes him like a continually watered tree, always fruitful. I, I read that, and it, it is evocative to me of the opening chapters of Genesis. For there, God created a man, the first man, and he put him in a garden. A garden that was sourced with four rivers, ensuring that it was always fruitful and abundant. That it was lavish and that all of his needs were met. Moreover, God gave that man his instruction to live by. He gave him everything that he might be a blessed man. But that man did not meditate on God's word. He did not shun the voice of the serpent, casting doubt on God's character and tempting him to sin. And the results were disastrous and we still feel them today. Sin entered into the world. Yet with love and mercy and grace, that was not the end of the story. And in the fullness of God's revelation, we see there is another man, the last man, Jesus Christ, who was in every way blessed. For he was truly righteous. He gained spiritual vitality and stability by trusting his heavenly Father, a trust that was cultivated by meditating day and night on his word and on his precious promises. Jesus gave himself over to knowing it, believing it, and obeying it. Thus, in all that he did, he prospered before God. And, and, and what did he do? He fulfilled God's will by living and dying and rising again as the promised Savior for sinners. Ultimately, it is by this man, Jesus, that we can be counted among the righteous. God has promised to save all who trust Him. And how does He save? By putting faith in Jesus, we receive Jesus' righteous life. All of the perfection of Jesus' life is credited to our account, and God counts it as our own. More than that, the judgment that we deserve for all of our sinful rebellion, God counts as having been put on Christ on the cross when He experienced judgment in our place. So in Jesus the righteous one, we will be able to stand in the judgment. In him, we are indeed blessed. When we trust Jesus, we are given new life, and we are set on the pathway of the righteous. Moreover, like a caring shepherd, he continues to lead us in this new way of life. And so now we daily follow him in faith, seeking to shun the sinful ways of the world, delighting in God's word, meditating on it day and night, that we might bear the fruit of righteousness in our lives. And when we fail, and we will, there is forgiveness and the restoration of fellowship that is promised with our Heavenly Father through Christ. So as we are on the, preface, the, the, the precipice here of the book of Psalms before we enter this doctrinal and doxological paradise, we have a choice to make, and it's a serious choice. The first word of the psalm is blessed, and the last is perish. There are only two ways to live. There's no middle, third, fourth, fifth. This is it. 
There's a way of wisdom and a way of foolishness, a way of blessedness and a way of condemnation. There is the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked, and we must decide which path we're going to take, which way we will choose. How will we enter the gates of this book? Are we prepared to listen to what God says to us here? We are only ready if we are walking in the way of Jesus, the righteous one, daily loving and trusting him to be our Savior and our Lord. Let's pray. Father, every single day of our lives, eternity is a breath away. We are not like you. We do not know the end from the beginning. We have not numbered our days. You have numbered our days. And only you know what is coming before us. And yet you have also told us that on that last day there is a judgment. And there are only two paths to that judgment. Jesus goes so far as to say one is a narrow way and one is a broad way. The way of the righteous is narrow, but the way of the wicked is broad. And yet, Father, you are calling us to the way of righteousness. By this good news in Jesus, who is our Savior, you are calling us out of this world and into a life with him. You will have set our feet on the path of righteousness, and you sustain us there when we continue to trust you. And so, Father, we pray this morning that we would hear that call. We pray, Father, that you would well up within us a greater desire and delight for your word, not simply so that we can check off a list of devotional times, not so we can simply feel good about what we have accomplished, but, Father, that, that we might develop in this discernment of godliness, that we might be effective to fulfill your mission in this world, that, Father, we might know you better and rejoice in our glorious fellowship with you. Father, we, we can't do that on our own. We need you to be at work in our lives. And so that is what we are asking for this morning. Father, we pray that you would give us hope and confidence and rejoicing in you through your great and precious promises, the glorious eternal truths that we find in your word. Father, all of these things... Point us to Jesus, your Son. May we trust in Him. As we continue, God, in a time of quiet reflection, we pray, Father, that you will encourage our hearts and convict us where change needs to happen, that we might truly be a people of the book. 